Lord, I thank you so much for the reminder that it is through your blood and your death and your resurrection and the fact that you gave yourself for us that there is victory to be had. God, victory over sin, victory over death. It's not our victory to claim, but it's yours. We thank you that you've allowed us to to really enjoy the spoils of your victory, Lord. And we thank you for that this morning. And as we come together to fellowship, to worship as one body, I pray that today we would remember that your blood was not just shed for one or two of us, but it was shed for your body. It was shed for all of us here. And so, Lord, I pray that you would guide us as we continue our journey through Joshua. And, Lord, I pray that you would continue to remind us of your great mercy and grace that you showed on the cross as Jesus gave his life. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm going to try a little social experiment in just a second. Usually when I do this, it doesn't work. So we're going to see what happens. All right. So first, just by a show of hands, all right, if you are unmarried, now, now don't show your hands yet, not about being unmarried yet, but if you are unmarried and you have ever had conflict with your parents, uh, okay, I want you to raise your hand. Unmarried, conflict with your parents. Okay, all right, okay. Married people, who here, raise of hands, has had conflict or disagreement with their spouse? Okay, has there anyone here that has never had conflict with a parent or a spouse? Wow, okay, good, okay. Oh, wow, we have one. Never in a disagreement. That's amazing. You need to come up here and teach us all. Okay, all right. Um, uh, Now, next question is this. Um, Talking about your parent uh, or your, um, your spouse, raise your hand if you are still in a good relationship with that parent or spouse that you've had conflict, conflict with. I'm not going to ask the other question, but good, because I don't want to single out people who maybe still have some issues, which sometimes can happen. But the truth of what we just saw is very clear, that conflict is a part of life, you know, and uh, it is not always a bad thing. Actually, I could probably ask the question, I won't, because uh, I don't want any secrets to be given away. But uh, I could ask the question of, in those times of disagreement, in those times of conflict that you had with someone in your life that is so important to you, someone that you love deeply, a spouse, a parent, a child, whatever it might be, or maybe even a brother or sister, and you've had conflict, a lot of times conflict and disagreement, although unpleasant at the time, many times can actually get you to a better place. That maybe there's something that needed to be confronted, something that needed to be discussed, that it wasn't fun to do. But once you got through that conflict and you had reconciliation, which I pray and hope that many, if not all of you, have had reconciliation after a conflict like this, that it doesn't, it, it doesn't hurt the relationship and in some cases actually helps the relationship. And I'm gonna say that today we're gonna see that Israel is no exception to the rest of mankind. Israel, we have just watched uh, in the first 21 chapters of Joshua, we have seen Israel, with the exception of the incident with Achan, where he stole the devoted goods from Jericho and, and needed to be punished and executed for that sin. Other than that, throughout the book of Joshua, the 21 chapters, it seems like Israel is just one big happy family with no issues at all. Other than Achan, we've seen that they have gone and had great victories over cities they had no business having victories over, uh, that they have worshipped together, they have, uh, they have seen, gone through Passover and they have been circumcised to show their allegiance to God. They have done all these things together as a nation. 
If you remember way back at the beginning of Joshua, we talked about uh, the two and a half tribes that are east of the Jordan River, which we looked at last week on our map, that actually had already had their land settled. It was the land that Moses gave to them as part of the promised land, and they had already defeated that before they even crossed the Jordan. But yet the soldiers of those two and a half tribes still went with the rest of Israel to help them in the fight against the rest of Canaan. And we saw unity that we saw in that. In that process, even way back then, we see that all of Israel is working together. And, and we haven't lost the fact that this whole time in Joshua, that God is the hero of the story, but that all of Israel really seems to be united and happy and rejoicing and all together without much issue, without much conflict. And then we saw that the distributions of the land happened. Uh, and uh, even in that, there wasn't any major conflict uh, as the land was distributed. But we're going to see today in Joshua 22, at the end of all of this conquest, after Israel has taken the land, the land has been allotted to all the tribes. It seems like all is ready to, to be, all, you know, that they all live happily ever after. It seems like that's where we're at. That, we're at the point of Joshua where we should be reading those words, they all lived happily ever after. After, But today we're going to see in Joshua 22 that nothing is that easy. And as conflict is in every other relationship, there is conflict even in the children of Israel. So we're going to be in Joshua 22. You can turn there. Uh, as we do, uh, just a few points of review. Uh, as you know, so far in the book of Joshua, we've seen that the nation of Israel and Joshua as its leader have been called to have courage through actively trusting in God. We've seen that Israel has crossed the Jordan River to take uh, to take the land in faithful obedience, remembrance, and they also took time to celebrate God's covenant with them. Uh, God has declared his presence with Israel, and he's declared his purpose, that he is there to make his own name great, that he would use Israel for his glory. Uh, and he does that as he gives victory over Jericho and Ai and other nations. God, throughout this time that God is giving victory, he shows his justice, he shows his judgment, he shows his mercy and his faithfulness. Things that as humans we don't understand how they all go together, but God in his perfection, in his holiness, can indeed be both just and and judge others and judge sin while at the same time being merciful and faithful. And we've seen that true of God throughout these, these 21 chapters. And as we looked at last week, God fulfills his promises. God fulfills his promises as Israel conquers the whole of the promised land. That Israel has been given the whole land. That there are still pockets of people uh, who have not yet been fully uh, taken over. But yet the control of the land has been given to Israel as God has promised. And we saw at the end of chapter 21 that all of the good promises that the Lord made to the house of Israel had not failed. All had come to, to pass. That God is a God who keeps his promise. And so we've seen that so far in the first 21 chapters of Joshua. And then in chapter 22, uh, this is where we see a conflict arise. So if you'll join me, I know chapter 22 is a little lengthy, but we will be, uh, be reading through chapter 22 if you will follow with me. Chapter 22 of the book of Joshua. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, that's that two and a half tribes that are east of the Jordan, and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, has commanded you, and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but you have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan." 
Only be very careful to observe in the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, has commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away and they went to their tents. Not to one half of the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession of Bashan, but to the other half, Joshua had given possession beside their brothers in the land west of the Jordan. And when Joshua sent them away to their homes and blessed them, he said to them, Go back to your tents with much wealth and very much livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, with much clothing. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh Manasseh, returned home, uh, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land of which they have possessed themselves by the command of the Lord through Moses." And when they had come to the region of the Jordan, that is the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the and people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, uh, there, built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it and said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier land of Canaan, in the region about the Jordan, on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, uh, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and went with ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, each one of them head of a family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, and they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves and for which we came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord that you must too turn away this day from following the Lord? And you too rebel against the Lord today and then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now if the... If the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord and make us rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan the son of Zerah break faith in the matter of devoted things and wrath fell upon the congregation of Israel? And did he not perish alone for his iniquity? Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, The mighty one, God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord, he knows, he let Israel itself know. If it is for the rebellion and breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if uh, if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear that in time to come your children might say to our children, What have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. So you, your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore we said, Let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering nor, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. And between our generations after us, that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings, so your children will not say to our children in the time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought if this should be said to us or our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. 
Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. When Phinehas the priest and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words of the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, spoke, it was good in their eyes. And Phinehas the son of Eleazar the priest uh, said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people from Israel or of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Then Phineas, son of Eleazar, the priest, and the chiefs returned to the people of Reuben and the people of, uh, returned from the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan to the people of Israel and brought back word to them. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel and the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land the people of Reuben and the people of Gad settled. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness for they said it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. This is an interesting story kind of thrown in here and I believe it's a, it's, it's a way of showing us in, the Isra- in Israel how fragile even the unity that they might have had. Remember as I said they've just had a fantastic military conquest that God has been the center of. And now it's time for those eastern tribes that came and helped the western tribes to take the rest of the land to go back to their homes, go back to their families, go back to the land that Moses had given them. And what I believe we see as the conflict transpires from there, that we see that God is making it very clear here in Joshua chapter 22 that he takes unity very seriously, that unity is necessary for God's people. That unity is necessary for God's people. They are almost ready to make war against one another. And we're going to see some different elements of unity that need to be preserved in God's people. And so when we look at Israel, I say that, yes, this is, for, this is about Israel. This is about their journey. This is about their conflict. But it also can give us some insight into our conflict in our lives and unity that we should have as God's people. And so that's what we're going to kind of go through as we look at this chapter And we're going to look at three ways that we see courageous unity in the people of Israel, and then three ways uh, in in thinking about that, three ways that we can also respond in courageous unity to conflict. All right, so the first thing, uh, first point is that courageous unity is seen in a common mission. Before we even get to uh, the conflict itself, the disagreement, the misunderstanding, before we even get to that, what we see in the first nine verses is we see that Joshua is sending the eastern tribes back to where they came from, back to where they have settled, back to their families, and Joshua makes it very clear uh, that uh, they are one together with the people. Even though he's sending them across the Jordan, that these two and a half tribes are still part of the body, the people of Israel. And Joshua does that in several ways. In verses 1 through 3, we're kind of given a, a, a description um, as Joshua says, hey, you've kept all that Moses has said to you. Joshua says to the two and a half tribes, you have done what you said you would do. The common mission that they shared, first of all, was that the eastern tribes shared in taking the promised land. They shared in taking the promised land. They didn't stay behind in the east and let all the other tribes go forward. They fought with their brothers. They fought with the rest of Israel. And they saw God's promises unfold. They saw God do miraculous things. And they were together in that. And they obeyed in that. They had one common mission, which was to experience and to claim the promises of God. And so there was a common mission between the two and a half and the rest of Israel. 
Then Joshua goes in and reminds the two and a half tribes, and he'll do this to the whole of Israel in just a chapter or two, but we see that Joshua then reminds the two and a half tribes before they go where their unity and where the connection lies between Israel and these tribes. And he says in verses um, 4 through 6, he talks about how important it is to remember the Lord. Verses 4 through 6, And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers, as he promised them. Therefore turn and go to your tents, and the the ones that Moses gave you. Only be very careful to observe the commandment of the law, of the Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. To love the Lord your God, and walk in all his ways, and keep his commandments, and cling to him, and serve him with all your heart, and with all your soul. Joshua makes sure that the two and a half tribes remember what is most key, what is most important. Even as they go back across the Jordan and they separate themselves physically from the rest of Israel, Joshua wants to remind them spiritually where they need to stay. That even though they may be physically not in the rest of the land and they'll be across the Jordan, that spiritually they are still one with the people of Israel as they serve and love God alone. That they are reminded to obey and serve God alone, no question. That they were to serve, love, and obey. That Yahweh, the Lord, was the bond that would hold all of Israel together. Joshua makes this very clear. He says, as you go your way, make sure you don't forget what Moses has commanded, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart, mind, and soul. And so Joshua makes it very clear that that is the common mission that they all still have, is to worship and serve God. And then finally, in verses 6 through 9, we see this interesting part where uh, Joshua says, as you go, by the way, here's all this stuff. He gives them half the spoils uh, of, of the conquest of Canaan. And this was a sign of unity that, that uh, Joshua was showing because this was customary that every soldier that went into battle would get a portion of the spoils of victory. And so Joshua does this for the two and a half tribes. He could have just sent them on their way and said, thanks for the help, uh, you guys go back to your own stuff. But no, he sends them with the spoils. This, they are given the spoils from war and they are sent home. You see, Joshua is fully recognizing that this nation right now, the two and a half tribes and the other tribes, although divided by a river, are still one people under God. They are still one people with one mission, with one God. Joshua is very clear about that. And that is going to be the source, the the very foundation of even when we get into this conflict. That is the source and the foundation of where unity must be found in God's people. It's not found in the fact that they necessarily like each other. Not found in the the sense that they uh, don't have any concerns with one another. Or that even they're physically separated. But the issue here is that God remains the center. That God remains the foundation of their unity. And Joshua makes that very clear before he sends the two and a half tribes away. So that's the first thing we see about unity. That courageous unity is seen in a common mission. It's a, it's a common reason, really, and that mission is God. That mission is serving Him and worshiping Him. And we have the same calling as Christians, that we all are ultimately called to do all to the glory of God. And as we do that together, it is all our mission that we join together. The Great Commission is also to spread His good word, to spread the gospel, to spread uh, His teachings as we make disciples that's also all of our mission that we all work together but it's all centered on God's work that we'll be centered around God's work because that's what Israel did so that was the basis we see that right off the way and we're thinking oh this is great this is right off the bat this is good they're going back but they're going to remember God and then the first thing we see happen then we see that there is conflict see courageous unity 
can be seen and often is seen in healthy conflict. And I use the word healthy conflict because that's important. Uh, and a lot of times we hear the word conflict and we think the most negative, terrible things about it. Conflict is always ugly and bad. And the truth of the matter is, yes, there is an element of it that is uncomfortable, but sometimes conflict is a very good thing because it allows for an understanding to come. Right now, we're going to see conflict as a result of a misunderstanding that once we see communication happen, we see that misunderstanding goes away. But we got to understand that unity doesn't mean an absence of conflict. Unity means that we deal with conflict in a healthy way. So conflict is not the problem. It's, make, it's how we deal with conflict that is what we need to look at. And so how do we deal with conflict in a healthy way? Well, we see Israel doing a few things here. First thing we see, the rest, of, so we see this situation, what comes up is, as the two and a half tribes go, they go across, and as they're, as they're crossing, they're realizing something, and they build this giant altar of imposing size, that we're told later is a copy of the altar that is in the tabernacle, which is the prescribed place for all of Israel to worship God. And so they build this, this altar, this huge altar that is seen by Israel, it's big enough to be seen by the rest of the nation, And Israel gets upset. Israel comes together and they actually, as we read in this passage, they come together ready to make war against the two and a half tribes. Because their perception is that the altar that was built is going to be one for idolatry. That it's going to be a place to worship other than where God says you should worship, which is the tabernacle itself. And so Israel becomes inflamed. They become upset. They're ready to make war. Uh, and, and as that happens, they think, uh, they think that the, the two and a half tribes have gone out to lunch, that they have decided to follow other gods, or maybe not even all that, but at least to worship God in their own way instead of the way that God prescribes. And so now this conflict happens. And the first thing in healthy conflict is that healthy conflict includes confrontation. Once again, we use the word confrontation, and we oftentimes think it's negative. But, you know, have you ever heard the phrase, you need to confront something head on? Con- confrontation is actually just meaning that you are, you are getting to a point of figuring something out. That it is coming, that it's coming to a point in which action needs to be done. And confrontation happens in verses 10 through 20. So Israel is upset, they're ready to make war. And in verses 10 through 20, we see that the, uh, that the priest, uh, one of the priests and a bunch of the leaders of Israel come to the two and a half tribes and they have this delegation. And when this delegation comes, what they do is they basically say, uh, why have you guys done this? Why have you built an altar? There's a reference to Peor here. There's a reference to Achan. And what the people of Israel who are coming to these two and a half tribes are saying is very simple. You have built this altar to worship in a way that you shouldn't worship. At Peor, we actually see that Israel was giving themselves in the book of Numbers over to the women uh, of the land that were worshiping Baal. And then all of a sudden, Israel started worshiping Baal, a false god. And when that happened, God sends a plague onto the, on the people of Israel until that is dealt with by, actually by, uh, the same priest that we're talking about here. And so that is dealt with, and God removes the plague. But all of Israel suffered because of a few Israelite men who are making uh, very, very bad sinful choices in following the idol of Baal. 
But then we also see it's mentioned in this passage about Achan. We remember the story of Achan. He stole from God. It wasn't that he was worshiping through idolatry, but he actually stole the things that were devoted to God. And in a sense, he was making himself a god. And so those two things are reminded as this delegation comes to the two and a half. And what happened with Achan, his sin was not just his personal sin. It cost all of Israel. They lost a battle at Ai because of it. And so the delegation reminds the two and a half tribes of that. And they say, listen... You can't worship God in a wrong way. You can't worship on this idolatrous uh, altar. And they assume so much of the two and a half tribes that the two and a half tribes are doing this maliciously so that they can worship in the way they want to. So there's a confrontation that happens. But notice what I love about this is the confrontation that happens. The confrontation isn't just going in and starting to kill people. Right? They're all together ready for war. They could have just marched right in on their assumption and they could have started warring against their very own people. A civil war right after the conquest was over. But yet they send a delegation instead which leads to this idea that healthy conflict not only includes confrontation, but it includes communication. Confrontation and communication, they go together. It's not just confronting and then assuming things and going forward with punishment. But it's a communication that needs to happen. Uh, and we see this happen. The delegation tells them what they think, and they say, why have you done this? And actually, the delegation in this passage also says, hey, if it's too hard for you to serve God over there on the other side of the Jordan, then why don't you come back to us? Come back to this side so you can worship the right way. So they're, they're going out, and this is a diplomatic mission. They're trying to, to preserve unity and, and, and not have to go to war through this conflict. And they're saying, if it's too hard to worship God over there, then come to us. And we see this communication happens, but this communication is two way. There's two ways. There's the confrontation. There's the why are you doing this? And then there's the response of the two and a half tribes. And in a nutshell, the two and a half tribes say, listen, no, we didn't build this altar to worship on it. This isn't to replace God's altar. This isn't to, uh, to worship an idol. Actually, all this is is a symbol or a witness to remind you guys that we are part of you. And it's actually this, their motivation was one of unity. They wanted a symbol to be there, especially for the generations that'll come, to say, listen, we are all one people. That the people that are east of the Jordan still have the right and the privilege and the ability to come and worship God in the tabernacle because they are all one people. There is unity to be had. And so that's the reason that they built this altar. And they wanted it to remind the people of Israel that the two and a half tribes that are east of the Jordan still are one body with you. We're one people. And so this communication happens back and forth as the confrontation happens and then the response happens. And we see this beautiful thing happen that even in this conflict that could have got so so uh, terrible so quickly, we could have seen bloodshed, we could have seen civil war. But as we see the people communicating one to another, we see a beautiful thing happen, which is that healthy conflict includes reconciliation. We see reconciliation We see in verse 31, after all of this happens, in verse 31, it says, And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst, because you have not committed the breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. There's reconciliation and understanding now. The delegation understands what the two and a half tribes were doing and they validate it and they say not only, remember going back to my thought earlier that sometimes conflict actually is a good thing. 
I think here we see that conflict reminds the people of Israel exactly of what Phineas says here. He says, uh, today we know that the Lord is in our midst. The fact that they were able to deal with this conflict in a godly way by communicating with one another, being willing to confront the problem head on and not just uh, take matters in their own hand or assume things, but to attack it head on through confrontation, but then also have good communication in the process and listening and talking. Uh, we see now reconciliation happens, and as reconciliation happens, who receives the glory? Not Israel, but God himself receives the glory. God receives glory because he is the, the ultimate mediator here, and that's what we see happening as they communicate through this conflict, through their confrontation and through their communication, we now see reconciliation. It's a beautiful picture. This idea of how to deal with healthy conflict does continue on into the New Testament. I won't go there because of time this morning. But Matthew 18 talks about how to handle conflict within the body of Christ. It talks about how to confront sin for the purpose of restoration. Uh, Hebrews 3, 12 through 13 tells us that we need to be watching out for one another, to encourage one another to not be taken away from the, by the deceitfulness of sin. That it is our job to confront in the way of coming to a point where we need to confront what we think is wrong. And sometimes we find out that we were wrong in our assumption, but it still needs to be something that is dealt with. And we need to communicate well. James 1.19, many of you know this verse, but it tells us all that we need to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And this is what we see happening even in this delegation. They were, they were slow to act in wrath by attacking. They listened. They talked. There was this idea of listening to one another and communication happened. And as a result, reconciliation happened in Israel. And reconciliation can happen even in our conflict in our churches today. All right, so this is something I believe we can see, that courageous unity is seen in healthy conflict. And then finally, and this is kind of going off the reconciliation idea, courageous unity is seen in clear restoration. In clear restoration. It's in restoration of a relationship, and that we see that happening here at the end of this chapter. In, verses, in verse 32, we see that uh, they go back. The, the delegation goes back to the rest of the people of Israel and they say, look, we, this is what they told us. This is the truth. We're all good. Everything's good. We figured it all out. God is God and we are still united as one. And they go back and they spread this to the rest of Israel, brought back word to them. And then we see that... Uh, that Israel, after they hear the word, after the good news of reconciliation was spread, now we see that Israel praised God and kept the peace. Verse 33. Uh, and the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. They now are, the reconciliation has happened, the restoration is happening, and now there is peace that the idea of war is now out of their mind because there has been conflict resolution and now we see that there is a restoration of a relationship. There is peace between Israel and the two and a half tribes. And then final, finally, verse 34, the last verse of this chapter. And the people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar, this altar that they built that was thought to be idolatrous but in turn meant to be a symbol of unity, called it witness. For they said it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. 
Once again, God gets all the credit. This altar becomes a symbol of the unity that Israel has through Yahweh, through the Lord, through God, the God of Israel who has fulfilled his promises. That is where Israel finds their unity, that God is the center of of it all. That this altar is called witness because it is to witness the unity of the people that is being given through God himself. It is a witness that the Lord Yahweh is God. And so where this conflict could have gotten very ugly, we see that there is great restoration that happens in the people of Israel. And God has preserved the unity of his people. And God still wants to preserve the unity of his people. In fact, uh, in just a moment, we're going to have an opportunity to do communion. Communion, that's an interesting word. We call it the Lord's Supper. It's called different things in different denominations and different religions. But as we come to communion, that very idea of that word, with union, communion, with union, it's very interesting that as they built this, this altar that was the witness of what God had done for Israel, today we really come to the same type of altar in the sense of this is a symbol, just like this altar was a symbol of the unity that they found in Yahweh, the communion that we have is an opportunity for us to remember <clears throat> the unity that we have in Christ. That Christ has given his life. He broke his body. He shed his blood so that we could be forgiven. But it's not just about me and you and just me, just me and Jesus. It's about us together in union. God has brought us together. God has saved us personally, yes, but he's also brought us together as a body. And we see that just as Israel had an opportunity to have this physical reminder of the spiritual truth that God is the one who brings unity, we have the same opportunity as we come to communion. Because indeed, God still does care about him being the center of unity among his people. And communion is just one way, as we're going to look at as we do do go to communion later, and when we look at 1 Corinthians 11, we will see that God does indeed care about unity. And this is one way to remind us that our unity is centered around God himself. So in conclusion, as we've looked at this idea of courageous unity and what that looks like, and we've seen it through a common mission, healthy conflict, and clear restoration, let's just ask a few questions of ourselves. And the first one is very simple. Have you put your trust in the unifying work of Christ? You see, in this world today, unity is almost never seen. Look at our... Just look at our government for two seconds, and you will see that there is not... Unity is not something that is common. Uh, you look around and many people are fighting all the time. There's disunity, there's division. No matter where you look, it's in families, it's in countries, it's in the world, it's everywhere. Division is the norm. And so when we have true unity through the love that Christ has given to us through his death, when we have that true unity, uh, God, Jesus, came to die so that we could have unity that passes all understanding that the world doesn't get. Galatians three twenty six through 28, that's the passage that tells us that we are all one in Christ Jesus. We no longer are identified by our, our worldly identities, but we are identified by Jesus, and we are one in Jesus, that one, we have true unity. But that doesn't come just because I like you more than somebody else, or because we have common interests and we both like to do the same things. Unity comes through Jesus. And we're going to remember that as we go to communion. 
that Jesus died. He came to this earth, lived a perfect life for you and for me so that he could die on the cross and pay our punishment for our sin that we committed when we turned away from God. And when we've done that, we deserve hell. But Jesus died for us. We're going to remember that as we go to communion, that he died for us, that he rose again three days later to prove that he had power over sin and death and that his sacrifice was was uh, was worthy of forgiveness and we are forgiven that is where we find our unity and God gives unity through Jesus's death and his resurrection and the fact that he still lives waiting for us so my challenge to all of us today is to find our unity in Jesus and if you don't know Jesus then you won't know unity you won't know true unity with, with other people or with God until you know Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus, if you haven't started a relationship with him by asking him to, to take your life and to commit to him and to repent of your sin then, and believe on all that he's done and all who he is, then today's the day to do it. Don't wait any longer. Find someone who can help you in the process of giving your life to Jesus Christ. A couple other questions to ask, especially even as we start to consider communion. Do we embrace healthy conflict or do we run away from it? So many of us are so afraid of conflict that we just decide to ignore it. We ignore issues that happen. What would happen if Israel would have ignored this? We don't know, but I can guarantee you it wouldn't have had the same result that it had. The unity that is seen at the end of this chapter and God being glorified, this would not have happened in the same way had Israel just said, oh, they're doing their own religious thing, that's whatever, we'll just ignore it because it doesn't really matter because they're over on the other side of the Jordan. Israel wanted to make sure that unity was important because they knew God thought unity was important. So the question for all of us today is, especially in the context of our church, it can extend to your family, it can extend to others, but especially in the context of our church, Do we embrace healthy conflict where we address issues head on and we don't just skirt around it and ignore it, but instead we address issues head on so that we can have have a restored relationship with someone else? Do we do that or do we run away from it? And I'd say if you're the type of person like I am that tends to run away from that, it's not good for you, it's not good for the other person, and ultimately it's not going to be the thing that's going to glorify God. Ignoring a problem and and not taking it on is not going to glorify God and it's not going to make you feel better. It's only going to make things worse. We need to embrace healthy conflict. And finally, as we think about healthy conflict, you hear that word. I'm not saying that after service today we should start yelling at everybody. Because the next point is this. Are we actively seeking restoration and unity with others? Is it your heart to actively seek unity and restoration and unity with others? Are you actively seeking that restoration, actively seeking unity, or are you just sitting by and assuming other people will take care of the hard work? I want to read one passage this morning that has to do with this idea of actively pursuing reconciliation, actively pursuing unity, and that's 2 Corinthians 13, 11. 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Such a beautiful verse. Yeah, so easily forgotten. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The idea here, let's not get, let's not get caught up in verse 12 and think about kissing people. But let's think about what the truth is here. The truth of this passage is that we are called to be a people of restoration, a people of unity, a people that loves and forgives, and a people that do whatever it takes to keep the peace.
That is what we are called to do. And so are we actively seeking restoration and unity with others? If you know in your heart of hearts that you are not actively seeking restoration and unity, maybe it's with a specific person or maybe it's with just in general, I don't know what God is doing in your heart, but ask the Holy Spirit to reveal it to you where you need to be actively seeking restoration, actively seeking unity. And if the Holy Spirit is leading you to make something right, then do it. It's the best thing you can do. With that, I'm going to transition us now into communion. So if the worship team wants to come up, and also any of those who I asked for to come up and help with serving communion, I appreciate that now. <clears throat> So all of the sermon today, and this was not even planned to come out this way, honestly because I don't keep track of a calendar that well, I didn't realize it was Communion Sunday until last night. But with all that being said, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and the reason we do communion, has a lot to do with what we just heard. From the book of Joshua, from the rest of the Bible, the importance of unity, the importance of being united around one mission, uh, the importance of being united around one God who is Jesus Christ, who is the one who came to give his life for us. And we have an opportunity. First Corinthians chapter 11, we always read the verses about the Lord's Supper. And, and Paul says, uh, listen, I have given you these commands. And he says, uh, you need to do this. But in context, before he says that you need to do communion, he's talking with the people of the Corinth church. And he says, you guys... Uh, he says, I do not commend you, for when you come together is not for the better, but for the worse. In the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And he goes on and he talks about disunity in the church. And then he says, in the midst of a talk, in the midst of a letter, uh, where he's talking about disunity, and he's talking about how people are being selfish, and there's not unity, and there's not care and concern for others. In the context, when all of a sudden he jumps in and says, for I received what I also delivered to you. With that as our background, let us rise and sing one final song together. Yes, the blood, it is my victory, but also, yes, the blood, it is our unity. It's where we find everything we need. And with that in mind, let us close as Ephesians 6, 24 and, or 23 and 24 closes the book of Ephesians. Peace be to all the brothers and sisters, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. With that, God bless.